We're not here just to win an election. We are here to win something for our country. I've always believed in Australians and their judgment, and I've always been prepared to accept their verdicts. And tonight they have delivered their verdict, and I congratulate Anthony Albanese and the Labor Party, and I wish him and his government all the very best. Hello, I'm Nick Cater, Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre, and this is Watercooler. Well, the verdict's in. The Liberal Party is out of office. Only the fourth time in its 78-year history that it's been thrown out of government. How does the party now start to rebuild? And more importantly, can it regain the trust of the Australian people in time for the 2025 election? My guest today is Paul Kelly, Editor-at-Large with The Australian. Paul, welcome to Watercooler. Very good to be with you, Nick. Now, you have been a working journalist on all four occasions that the Liberal Party has moved from government to opposition, 1972, 1983, 2007 and now 2022. What comparisons can you make between this defeat and previous defeats, if any? Well, there's a very sharp difference. Uh, the feature of the first three examples was that the alternative government, the Labour Party, had a popular or charismatic leader, the very ambitious agenda of change. Now, that wasn't the case this time. Labor went to this election with a modest agenda. In some ways, it was a non-ideological agenda. And the policy content was certainly far less ambitious than what we've seen from Labor in the past. So this was a cautious Labor Party offering safe change under Anthony Albanese as a leader, certainly not an overwhelmingly popular or charismatic leader, but a leader who was playing it safe. In terms of the government, the only point I'd make is that the government was responsible for some pretty significant failures. The Morrison government was outsmarted and outmaneuvered in political terms. I'd like to come and expand on that later, Paul. But first, this would be the first time that the, the Liberal Party has lost a significant number of seats to a third party as well. Am I right in that? Not just the Teals, but the Greens in the case of Brisbane and Ryan in Queensland. So it's not just Labor that has brought the Liberal Party to this position of less than 60 seats in the, in the lower house. Well, that's correct. And... This is what distinguishes this election from previous elections since the formation of the Liberal Party by Sir Robert Menzies. Uh, the party lost seats to Labor across the country, and it also lost seats to, in particular, the Teal, lost its blue ribbon Liberal seats, the heartland of the Liberal Party, the, the popular strength of the Liberal Party, the seats where previous leaders had come from, uh, the, beating, the beating philosophical essence, if you like, of the party, and it also lost some seats to the Greens, although what I'd say is if the Teals had run in those seats, then Teals may have picked up those seats as well. So essentially, 
what happened is the government lawsuits to what might be called um, the um, upmarket uh, progressive forces disillusioned with the Liberal Party, leaning to the left, and it also lost seats to the Labor Party, its traditional rival. Now, an interesting thing, Paul, in 2016, the, the coalition only just came back into office. It was a close-run thing, of course, with Malcolm Turnbull as leader. Interestingly, in that election, the party actually put on some votes. There was actually a swing to it in certain seats. Now, there's a close correlation between those seats and the seats that were taken by the Teals in this election. Should there significance in that? Should we have seen the popularity of Malcolm Turnbull in those kind of seats as an ominous sign of what might be to come? Well, I think trend has been there for quite some time. It's been fairly clear for a while, particularly because of the climate change issue, that there was a growing sense of concern among constituents in these former blue ribbon liberal seats about the party's attitude on climate change. While Malcolm Turnbull was leader, there was a reverse effect. But certainly, I think over the last couple of years under the Morrison government, uh, the signs were very strong about this sense of disillusionment. Having said that, I might say that I was surprised the sheer magnitude of the vote for the teal and the number of seats that they won. I understood that this was a really potent threat to the Liberals. I did not quite anticipate the scale of that threat or their success in winning seats. Yeah, it had a sort of inevitability about it, didn't it? It seemed like the moment had come and it was just a case of the dam breaking. It's, it, the, the big question is how hard will it be for for the Liberal Party to recapture that territory, which which goes right all the way from, well, Vaucluse, Bondi in the south, right up to almost a Hornsby now. Uh, it's a big slab of the North Shore and a similar picture in inner city Melbourne. How can it regain that ground? Uh, well, the first point to make is that the worst mistake the Liberals could make would be to surrender this territory. If they decided to do that, I think they would be tolling the bell of doom for the Liberal Party. I don't believe for one moment that it would be a viable strategy for the Liberals to surrender all those seats, all that territory, and expect that they could compensate by winning seats back from the Labor Party sufficient to form government and compensate for the surrender of teal seats. To me, that doesn't work in terms of arithmetic. It doesn't work in terms of the seats. And it would also represent something else. It would represent, I think, a negation of the essential meaning of the Liberal Party as defined by Menzies from the time of 1944 onwards. That is, the role of the Liberal Party is to have a broad vision for the country. The Liberal Party has got to be an expansive party, a party that's ambitious a party that looks across the broad expanses of the country and tries to make an appeal in the regions, in the suburban seats and in the city seats. And I think it would be a great historic blunder for the Liberal Party to walk away from that, to be mesmerised and panicked by this result. And frankly, if you look at 
some of the seats the Teals won, the Liberals don't have to do all that much to improve their primary vote to win the seats back. I'm not suggesting that this will be easy. I don't think it will be easy. You've got to look at it on a seat by seat basis. And fundamental to this, of course, will be um, the way the Liberal Party redesigns itself in both a values sense, um, it must run on contemporary values. Uh, it can't look as though it's yesterday's party. It can't look as though it's out of touch with the way Australia's changed 2013. And of course, it's got to address the policy ramifications arising from climate change. Uh, alluded to the fact that, that uh, they've got to hold those teal seats whilst holding parts of the country where sentiment is very, very different. And, and I note, and this has possibly been a little un underreported in my view, uh, the amount of uh, votes that they lost to principally Pauline Hanson's One Nation and United Australia Party, which we might think of as uh, sort of right-wing populist parties against the left-wing left populism, if you like, of, of the Teals. So look, there's the challenge. First of all, how significant do you think the losses were of that, uh, let's characterise it as, as the blue-collar um, Liberal Party base uh, to those parties, if it was indeed that, uh, uh, and how how important was that? And and outline for me how big the challenge is of of regaining the confidence both of that constituency at that end and the the inner city metropolitan uh, leafy suburbs at the other. Well, there's no doubt that the loss of votes <clears throat> on the populist right to Palmer and Hanson is significant. I wouldn't want to play that down. It's not as important as the loss of votes to the teal. And the reason for that is obvious. The loss of votes to the Teals meant that a significant number of seats were lost to the Liberal Party. So in that sense, of course, we've got to draw the distinction between proportion of votes lost and proportion of seats lost. So I guess that's my first point. But in terms of um, what the party's got to do, uh, in terms of managing the, the hemorrhage here on the populist right, I'd say a few things. The notion of a broad church, which we all accept is the uh, definition and character of the Liberal Party, in a sense has been turned against the party. The notion of the broad church should be a strength. But in recent years, it's been turned into a liability. And the way it's been turned into a liability is there's been a big focus on the competing factions, if you like, the conservative group and the progressive group. And politics has increasingly been depicted in terms of this competition, almost this warfare within the Liberal Party. And this has got to the stage where it is a negative. There's no question about this at all. So I think the party needs to consider how it's got to come together. It's certainly got to appeal to people on both the left and right of that spectrum on the centre-left of politics. But it's got to avoid being turned into a factionalised situation in which these two entities seem to be at war with one another. 
And what I just say about this is that I think the fundamental differences are about climate change. I mean, if we look at the, if you like, the conservative side of the party and the progressive side of the party, seems to me their differences about economic policy aren't too serious. Their differences over national security or defence policy or China aren't too serious. Their differences over health and education and welfare aren't too serious. And I also think that there are a number of cultural issues where the differences aren't too serious either. I think essentially the party is sceptical and opposed to the idea of identity politics. I think it's concerned about values in education and curriculum. So I actually think there's a lot more common ground between, if you like, the two sides of the Liberal Party than there are differences. But it's the differences that have been highlighted and it's the common ground that's been that's been weakened. So I would make that point. I think what the party's got to do now is it's got to remember it is a liberal party. It's not a progressive party and it's not a conservative party. It is a liberal party. It should take heed from David Kemp's great history of Australia, the central theme of which is that Australia, above all else, has been a liberal democracy, not a conservative democracy, not a social democratic democracy, not a socialist democracy, a liberal democracy. And I think the party's got to look into the history and it's got to draw strength from that. What I'd then say is, of course, it's got to have tactical appreciation in terms of how it deals with um, the populist right. And I think in that sense, it does need to have policies appealing to base. And I think that can be encompassed in terms of the summary that I've just provided, just as it's got to provide uh, tactical policies in those seats won by the teal. The final point I'd make in answer to this complex question, Nick, is that remember, Australia is now a more diverse country. It's perfectly natural to think that the major parties have got to be more sophisticated in putting together internal coalitions of voters in order to appeal to Queensland or suburban Melbourne or Perth. And Labor has got the same problem. The Albanese government, the longer it governs, is going to find it will run into the same difficulties trying to appeal to people to sustain the Labor vote in a more diverse country. Let's just stick with those points, Paul, about the things that bind the party together rather than the things that divide it. Because anybody who cares about the future of the Liberal Party and indeed anybody who cares about the importance of having a competitive two-party system in this country, we've got to focus on that for the next three years. Now, you'd remember the divisions of the, the 80s and 90s, often characterised as a split between the wets and the dries, expressions terms that came over were imported from from Britain but that was essentially was it not an argument about economics it was about economic policy principally and yet that is something which is more or less settled now within the party it's not a, a wet and dry argument about economics it's moved on to other things principally climate change would that be right I think that's right that split that you're referring to between the wets and the dries was a very profound 
uh, phase of Liberal Party history. The internal divisions were significant. They were about economic philosophy and economic policy. And given the centrality of the economy, the entire existence of the Liberal Party, this was a very important moment for the party. And I believe your further point is correct, that this issue was settled, it was eventually settled under the leadership of John Howard, when Howard returned to the party as leader, and you had uh, Howard as leader and Prime Minister, and then Peter Costello as Treasurer. And essentially, it was settled on terms that I would call uh, being a combination of um, dry economics and political pragmatism. That is uh, a sort of settlement based on, on dry pragmatism. Um, and uh, the party has essentially been in that position ever since. I think there are significant lessons to draw from that. And I would say that when you look at the current divisions, I'd reiterate the point that I just made. I think a lot of these divisions are driven around the issue and the politics, the policy, and the morality of climate change. And I think if the party can settle that issue, then once again, it's got a fairly good chance of really reducing a lot of the heat in these internal tensions. Now, Scott Morrison's popularity was uh, highlighted time and time again as a factor in this election. No doubt it was. But I want to talk about, I want to ask you two questions about Scott Morrison. First of all, let's talk about his achievements, which I think are probably more substantial than many have given him credit for. And then I want to talk about the mistakes, because I think this is crucial, Paul, and I think too many times we've seen uh, governments leave you know voted out of office and not honestly assess their mistakes which they must so perhaps we could start that process at least in this session first of all though to the achievements what do you see as morrison's great achievements well the achievements are very uh, significant let me focus on the achievements first nick as you indicated um two very big political achievements First of all, to a significant extent, helped to save the reputation of this period of coalition government by winning against the odds the 2019 election. A very significant achievement. And it's my view, no other figure in the Liberal Party could have led the party to that election victory in 2019 at that time. His second big achievement was to keep the party together on the leadership question, mm. Mm. because what happened during that term was that uh, Scott Morrison um, led the party throughout that term. Um, and unlike uh, the two previous terms, when we saw internal convulsions and the leader being replaced, that did not happen last term. So I think they're two significant achievements. In policy terms, I'd just say this. I think the last term was a pretty successful term uh, in terms of the policy achievement by the Morrison government. And I would nominate three areas in particular. 
This term was dominated by two great challenges, the global pandemic challenge and the strategic challenge from China. In terms of the global pandemic challenge, in health terms, we did very well compared to the rest of the world. I don't need to go through those figures. We know what those figures are. The Australian achievement in health terms was significant. The Australian achievement in economic terms was significant in terms of limiting the domestic recession and then laying the basis for the economic recovery. If we look then at the national security side, again, the achievements are significant, I think, in terms of defying China's economic coercion against Australia and in terms of the relationship with the United States under both President Trump and President Biden and then the AUKUS submarine agreement and all the associated technology that goes with that. So I think the policy achievements last term under the Morrison government have been underrated and I think they will be seen as significant. Now, I've just been dealing with their pluses. I'm happy to deal with the negative. Yeah, because we must, Paul. I mean, look, any good company, Dyson Vacuum Cleaners, for instance, learns from its mistakes and refines its products. So at the very least, we should be honest about the mistakes from that point of view. So over to you. Okay. In dealing with the mistakes, the first mistake was that Scott Morrison did not pay sufficient attention to nurturing the profile of his own prime ministerial persona. Now, there can be very few greater political mistakes that prime ministers make. The Australian electorate looks at prime ministers and they make a judgment about prime ministers and the task of every successful prime minister is to manage their standing their authority, their conviction, and the way they project themselves to the Australian electorate. And the only conclusion to make about Scott Morrison is that he failed in that regard. And this was particularly obvious in the last several months of his prime ministership, because what happened was that his personal standing became an enormous liability for the government. Labor got onto this very early, they saw very early on potential to run a serious and brutal campaign against Morrison's persona as prime minister. They did it and it worked. So that is a very major uh, deficiency for the prime minister. Secondly, in policy terms, one of the great weaknesses of the election campaign was that the government did not have an ambitious policy agenda for the next term. Mm. And this was an extraordinary failure. I mean, you saw this <clears throat> virtually every day during the election campaign. Scott Morrison was really effective talking about the government's policy record. He was really ineffective talking about the policy agenda for the next three years because there was not a substantial agenda. It was essentially more of the same. And that's what Labor wanted to hear. Because Labor essentially ran a campaign saying, listen, if you re-elect Morrison, it's more of the same. So in that sense, I think that was a really important strategic and policy failure. The other point I'd make is the degree of disunity within the party uh, became a real liability in 
the final uh, six months. And we saw this in terms of pre-selections, candidate selections, and then people speaking out. And there was an element at work here in which people were looking after their own interests and their own seats and putting that ahead of the government. When you start seeing that happening, it's a telltale sign. My final point about the weakness of about the weaknesses and mistakes of the government, again goes the Prime Minister. Scott Morrison presented himself as a pragmatist from the centre. That's how he saw himself. That's how he governed. He was seen very much as a transactional Prime Minister. But I think one of the problems at the very end was you've had a lot of people saying, I'm not certain about the convictions of this, of this Prime Minister. Um, I'm not convinced about what this government actually stands for and what this Prime Minister actually stands for. So I think there was too much transaction and not enough conviction. Could we make one more comparison with the loss in 2007 and the loss in 2020? And I think this may be significant, but I would, would like your, your view on it. In 2007, when John Howard left office. Facebook had barely started. The smartphone, which would allow us to access all these apps and news around the clock, was at least a year away, and most people wouldn't have it for longer than that. So essentially, John Howard was the final pre-Facebook era prime minister we had. And by Facebook, I use that as a catch-all term for social media and everything that goes with it. How significant a factor is that now in politics? And is should we allow uh, prime ministers like Scott Morrison a little extra leeway in judging them because of the pressures that they face from this kind of undisciplined, 24-hour, um, asymmetrical media? Oh, I think the points you're making here are totally justified, I think, difference between 2007 when John Howard lost and 2022 when Scott Morrison lost is really significant. The way politics is conducted, the interaction between the community and the media has changed so much in this period of 15 years. And we need to focus a lot more on this, Nick, and we need to understand a lot more about what's just happened. But what I'd say about this is that there are um, a few really important factors. The country is more fragmented. It's more fragmented in cultural terms and it's more fragmented in political terms. And social media is a catalyst, a catalyst for these trends. So it's much more difficult for the major parties. It's much more difficult to govern and it's particularly more difficult for a governing party to introduce reforms. So I think there's no doubt that the fragmentation in the country makes governing more difficult, and we do need to appreciate that. One of the lines I often use writing about this, I say that if Bob Hawke was back governing today, he would find life a lot more difficult than what he experienced during the 1980s, simply because the environment has changed. The other point I'd make, which I think is highly relevant here, is that these changes have 
increase the power of the negative in Australian politics and weaken the power of the positive. And we saw this very much in evidence in this most recent election campaign. Both Anthony Albanese and Scott Morrison were running on very modest political agendas. There wasn't much ambition in what they said. Why is that? Well, one of the reasons there wasn't a lot of ambition is ambition is too risky. Ambition is too dangerous these days. And the reason for that is the power of the negative campaign is greater than ever. And so if you show a little bit of ambition, you're asking for quite a lot of risk to go with that. So I think all the incentives and disincentives are towards more cautious policy positions. But of course, that's not what the country needs. The country needs more ambitious policy. So you've got here a complete tension, a complete conflict mm. between where the political system is driving and where the fundamental policy requirements of the country are, are going. Well, Paul, at the Mendes Research Centre, we're obviously looking ahead and working hard on policy for the 2025 election, but it's important to have a, a discussion about what's just occurred and, and where the party should go now in terms of this direction. Thank you very much for kicking off that discussion for us this afternoon and uh, showing us where the benefit comes from having covered elections for 50 years. I look forward to welcoming you back to get your coverage of the 2025 election, uh, but uh, hopefully we'll talk very often between now and then. Thank you, Paul. Uh, well, Nick, it's been a great pleasure to uh, talk with you. I always enjoy our conversation and it's been uh, terrific uh, to talk yet again to the Menzies Centre. So thank you. Thank you, Paul. You've been listening to another water cooler conversation brought to you by the Menzies Research Centre. We'd like to bring you many more, of course, and you can help us by subscribing from just $10 a month. Go to www.menziesrc.org slash subscribe. I'm Nick Cater, and thank you for listening. Thank you.